If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3. It seems that with each passing year, and almost it can seem like with each passing month, it's becoming increasingly clear that we are, in fact, living in a post-Christian culture. There was a time... When many of our beliefs and convictions as Christians were supported by and and indeed held by the broader culture around us. That's probably been gone longer than we realize. And those days are certainly gone now. We say God created all that is. But the culture says no. The universe came to be because of purposeless time and chance. We say God has authority over our lives. Culture says no. The individual has all authority for self-determination. We say there is a divinely designed difference between men and women. But the culture says no. That's sexist and transphobic. We say marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life, and the culture says, no, that's homophobic. You see, we're expected to not only go along with and agree with the broader culture on all of these issues, but it is actually demanded that we celebrate these perspectives and seek to actively advance their cause. Otherwise, we are deemed to be on the wrong side of history and the enemies of societal progress and harmony. And so, as Christians committed to faithfulness, to God's word, to God's revealed truth, we find ourselves increasingly at odds with the culture. And so this culture around us that claims to champion tolerance will not tolerate our dissent. All of this is a recipe for the growth and persecution of Christians. How can we as Christians prepare ourselves to live in an increasingly hostile culture? How should we respond when, not if, but when, persecution comes our way? Well, Peter was writing this letter to a group of Christians that were beginning to feel some of the pains of this kind of persecution. Although it's likely that at the time that Peter is writing, the full fury of this persecution against Christians was still a few years yet into the future. But these Christians were beginning to experience experience increased mistreatment and marginalization from the unbelieving culture around them. And in that way, I think our situation and their situation is very, very similar. 
How should they respond? Peter shares with him in our text this morning the Christian response to persecution. And it might be helpful to just think a little bit about what persecution is and what it isn't. Persecution is the experience of suffering or mistreatment or marginalization as a direct result of our faith in Jesus Christ. Not all suffering we experience in this life is a result of persecution. Sometimes we suffer because we simply live in a fallen world and are, like all human beings, subject to the sinful actions of others. We're subject to disease and death and all kinds of other unpleasant and even excruciating experiences. So not all suffering is persecution. Likewise, sometimes we suffer not because we're being persecuted as Christians, but because of our own unwise and sinful actions. The Christian who feels they're being persecuted because they've been fired from their job or overlooked for a a raise or a promotion or something like that, feels they're being persecuted when in fact they've not done their job well. When in fact they've not always been honest. When in fact they've not used their time well. Sometimes we suffer because of our own foolish and sinful actions. But when we suffer at the hands of others as a direct result of our love for Jesus Christ, our commitment to Him, and our faithfulness to His teaching, that is Christian persecution. Christian persecution can range from being hated and rejected by friends or family. It can look like being ostracized or being made fun of. It can range from having false things said about you, being falsely accused and being insulted, being passed over for opportunities and promotions. And in more extreme circumstances, it can certainly, of course, include physical abuse, imprisonment, and even death. So our text this morning shows us how we as Christians are to respond to persecution. So let's look at it without any further delay. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ 
will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, can look around and, and judge the seasons we're in. We are aware, all too aware, of the opposition to our faith that is growing all the time, it seems. And yet, Lord, we know you're sovereign over that as well. You're in control. We don't need to be overwhelmed with panic or fear. But we do need to give heed to your word and trust you. Seek to be obedient to it. So, Lord, teach us what you have for us this morning. Show us how we should respond when we find ourselves persecuted for following you. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want us to see together six gospel-centered responses when suffering for righteousness. Six gospel-centered responses when we're being persecuted. I say they're gospel-centered responses because the gospel is at the center of this whole section. Peter has mentioned the gospel, has had the thread of the gospel running throughout chapter 2 and verse 24, 23, talks about Jesus' death on the cross while being reviled. He did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Likewise, the verse that follows these, verse 18 of chapter 3, Peter goes right back to the gospel and he connects what he's just said and what I've just read from chapters, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, to the gospel in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The gospel is at the center of these principles, right? The gospel is what fuels our response in the midst of persecution. It's what informs our response to persecution. And so I would never want to divorce any of these principles from the gospel itself. The gospel is the foundation that undergirds it all, that informs it all, that empowers it all. So that's what I mean by gospel-centered responses. Okay? So the first gospel-centered response to suffering for righteousness, to persecution, is this. First, know that you are blessed of God. Know that you are blessed of God. Now that can be hard to affirm in the midst of suffering, right? Lord, thank you for blessing me. Could you bless me a little less? But we are blessed when we suffer for Christ's sake. Now in verse 13, 
Peter has reminded them that normally doing good doesn't result in persecution. That's good to keep in mind too. God has built into the world the general principle of sowing and reaping. Normally when you sow a good deed, you reap a good consequence, a good reward. Normally employers are inclined to treat employees well who work hard and are responsible and do their jobs well. Normally, governing officials will treat citizens well who pay their taxes and obey the law. So that's why Peter says what he does in verse 13, who's there to harm you if you do what is good. And he's just called them to do good deeds, right? He's called them to excellent behavior throughout chapter 2 and now into chapter 3. And he says, look, this is normally going to result in in your tangible blessing here on this earth. You're you're normally going to be rewarded for good behavior. That's how things normally work. But to every rule, there is an exception. So that's why he says what he does in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... Even if you should suffer for doing the right thing, the good thing, the godly thing, you are blessed. Suffering as a result of doing what God has called us to do results in our blessing from God. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should. Peter was no doubt present when Jesus shared this same truth in his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying a lot in that. He's saying, look, persecution is nothing new. The Old Testament prophets experienced it, and you'll experience it too. Jesus experienced it, and Jesus said, if they treated me this way, you better believe they'll treat you that way as well. But Jesus says here that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are to be counted among the blessed of God. Blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed because their reward in heaven is great. And because they are blessed, they have reason for gladness and rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your suffering. Those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness are blessed in the sense that they are showing themselves to be genuine Christians who are willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus. 
There's a sense in which we never know the genuineness of our faith until it's tested. Until we come up against opposition. Until it's not the popular opinion and perspective. But when all the world's against us, and we maintain faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are blessed objectively in God, and God blesses us, but we're also blessed subjectively with the assurance that we are indeed followers of Jesus Christ. Those who endure suffering and persecution are blessed, knowing that their faith in Jesus is bearing fruit in their willingness to follow Jesus even when it costs them everything. They have reason to rejoice because they have demonstrable proof that they are counted among those who are divinely and eternally blessed. And they await an eternal reward which Jesus said is very great. Peter has shared with us the blessed condition of the Christian, the genuine Christian. In 1 Peter chapter 1, look back there with me if you would. 1 Peter 1, 3. Again, the gospel is just sprinkled throughout this letter. We're never far from it. 1 Peter 1, 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected right now by the power of God through faith for His salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice because you're blessed. Blessed of God with this eternal inheritance. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you're suffering, when you're going through it, when the world is in opposition to you and the faith once delivered to all the saints, take stock. Remind yourself that I am blessed based upon the promise of Jesus Christ himself. I am blessed of God. My reward in heaven is great. I have reason to rejoice and be glad. And I stand in a long line of faithful brothers and sisters who've gone before me who likewise have felt the sting of persecution. So Christian, in the face of persecution, know that you are numbered among the blessed. 
eternally blessed, divinely blessed, immeasurably blessed. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul puts it. Blessed knowing that our labor in the Lord and our suffering for the Lord is never in vain. Blessed knowing that God is always at work, causing all things to work together for our good and for His glory. When you are suffering for the sake of following Jesus, know that you are blessed. We need to call that to mind. Secondly, a second gospel-centered response to persecution. Don't be afraid of your persecutors. Don't be afraid of those who are in opposition to you. Peter quotes here from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, he says in verse 14. Encouraging them here not to be afraid of those who are persecuting them. Literally, it says, do not fear their fear. Do not fear the fear they seek to instill in your hearts. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be terrified out of fear of them. The meaning is plain. Don't be afraid of those who persecute you. It can be easy to become fearful and intimidated by those who may possibly oppose us or shun us or mistreat us or do us or our families great harm. But we are not to be overcome by the fear of man. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God's in our corner, what do we have to be afraid of? We know how the story ends. We know where all of this is headed. We don't know all the details along the way. But we know the big picture. If God is for us, who can be against us? The writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 118.6 when he says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my help, helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? The fear of God has been a recurring theme in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 17 states it simply as a command, fear God. That reverential awe, that living your life under God's authority and recognizing His authority and seeking to submit to His authority in our lives. Loving Him, worshiping Him, obeying Him. And here, this same theme of fearing God is underscored by telling us who we should not fear. Man, we shouldn't fear those who are in opposition to us, who persecute us. And the true fear of God will help us to overcome the fear of man. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, Having the fear of God puts everything else in its proper place. It, it's, a, it's a natural sorter 
of circumstances and perspectives. It causes us to get our mind right, to get our heads screwed on straight, and to view the world as it really is, operating under God's authority as we place ourselves and submit ourselves to that authority. And as a result, we fear God so much that we don't fear the face of any man. The fear of God will help us to put persecution into proper perspective. What can man do to me? Don't fear the persecutor. Don't fear those who are in opposition. Rather, take pity on them. Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of men so that they may not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Don't fear those who persecute you. Fear the Lord instead. Thirdly, a third response, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. And again, this is the other side of that coin. Don't fear man, but fear the Lord. Instead of fearing those who persecute us, we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. To sanctify something is to set it apart as special. It's to consecrate it. And here it has a sense of revering something as holy. Revere Christ as Lord. And again, the idea here is fearing God, fearing the Lord Jesus It is to fear Jesus Christ as Lord. It is to rightly view Jesus for who he truly is. King of kings and Lord of lords. If we're rightly honoring and revering Christ as Lord, then we will not respond in fear to those who are persecuting us. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we will never struggle with fearing persecution. We are but flesh and blood, we are human, we are weak and feeble. The struggle and the temptation to fear will always be present within us when we are facing persecution for our faith. But the only true antidote for that fear is to fear the Lord. Is to set Him apart as Lord and Christ in our hearts. To confess Him as Lord in our heart and resolve afresh to fear the Lord Jesus more than we fear the face of any man. To fear the Lord Jesus, what come what may. To be strong and courageous, Joshua chapter 1. To choose for ourselves this day whom we will serve. It is to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Again, rightly aligning ourselves with the way things truly are. Understanding that He is Lord and King. And we submit ourselves gladly, gladly to Him and to His plans and purposes for us. A fourth response to persecution. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter continues. 
Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Having set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, we are to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that's in us. You see, the natural result of sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart, of of once again confessing Him as Lord and resolving to follow Him wherever it leads us, whatever the consequences may be, is going to be people looking onto our lives and going, huh, I think He really believes that. I, I think He's really, really genuine in what he believes. So what does he believe? Questions begin to arise. And Peter's simply saying here, be ready for it. The person who's resolved to follow the Lord Jesus, come what may, is going to get questions. It's going to cause people to be curious. So be ready to give an answer. The word Answer there, or defense, is the word apologia, from which we get our English word apologetics, which speaks to a defense of the faith, and that's a legitimate understanding of that term, defense. When we talk about apologetics, we're of course talking about using arguments and reason to help remove objections to faith and to help persuade the hearer of the truth of the gospel and the claims of the Bible. But that technical usage of apologia, I don't think is the way that Peter intends it here. I think Peter simply means that we're to always be ready to give an answer or a a reply to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that's in us. We aren't to be caught off guard by this. We're to be ready to explain ourselves to explain our worldview, to explain a little bit of what makes us tick as Christians. So the sense here, I I don't believe, is that we're to launch into a series of carefully crafted arguments in favor of the existence of God or of the reliability of the Scriptures or something like that. Though those kinds of arguments are very useful, I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. I think he's just saying we ought to be ready to share our faith in Jesus Christ when someone asks. To be able to explain what we believe about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how that's worked itself out in our own lives. I think a great example of just this very kind of a defense or an answer is seen in the life of Paul in the book of Acts. As he stands before King Agrippa there, Paul is being falsely accused by the Jews. And I want you to turn with me there. We're going to look at that passage a little bit in depth. Acts 26. Acts 26. Paul makes a defense before King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was ruling when Jesus was born. 
Paul is called to state his case. What's this all about, Paul? What's going on? Acts 26, 2. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Skip down to verse 6. Paul continues. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's giving an answer for hope that's in him, right? See the connection? Verse 9. Acts 26, 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So now Paul is explaining his background, right? He's explaining how he was opposed to God. He was opposed to Jesus. Verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have prepared to you, I have prepared you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa... I. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now skip down to verse 22. To this day, Paul goes on, I've had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's what being ready to give a defense looks like. You say, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. I can't possibly respond like that I mean that is amazing you know that that response but but what is Paul doing there let's break it down just a little bit he's simply being faithful to relay the truth of the gospel and the truth of what happened to him right the truth of the gospel and how he encountered it and the changes it made in him Being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us is simply a readiness 
to share the truth of the gospel and how it's impacted us, how it's changed us, how it's given us hope. Hope that's in us, gospel hope. Hope is central to the gospel. That's what Peter said in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a living hope to those who believe. We're to share this message. Peter adds, with gentleness and reverence, with gentle speech, a heart of love, with reverential awe of God and respect for the person we're talking to, wanting to represent God well and to faithfully convey the truth of the gospel. Now, all of this means that we simply need to be prepared. We we shouldn't be caught off guard with a question that comes to us. We need to think through a little bit. What would we say when someone might ask us about the hope we have and an opportunity arises for us to be able to share the gospel? What will you say? Are you ready? Are you ready? We don't have to make it harder than it is. Right? If you know the gospel, presumably you've believed the gospel, you know the gospel, right? You can't believe on what you don't know. So you already know the gospel if you're a believer. Simply articulate that. If you need some help with this, I want to give you a little help with this. There are lots of resources that I might point you to that can give us a little bit of help to help us, you know, sort of, you know, where do you begin? Where do you start? What's the middle? What's the end? Right? How do you bring it all together? Those things can be practically helpful to us. And so one of the favorites of mine and one that I've taught here at the church is called Two Ways to Live. And I've included a link to it in today's sermon notes on the church app. So again, bonus material for those of you who have the app. At the bottom of the sermon notes page, there's a link to Two Ways to Live. And it's an online, simple presentation of the gospel, complete with hand-drawn diagrams that help to illustrate the truth of the gospel itself. The point is that we're to simply be ready to explain what we believe and why we have this hope. The world lacks hope, beloved. They lack hope. What does an unbeliever hope in? The future? Maybe that it'll get better and brighter? What if it doesn't get better for them? That's just a wish. That's not true biblical hope. Do they hope in their stuff? Materialism? What if they lose all that they have? There's a lot of economic uncertainty right now. The unbeliever often believes that this life is all there is. There's no afterlife. What kind of hope is that? Life is hard and then you die. 
Not very hopeful. Maybe if they're slightly spiritual in any sense or have an idea of some kind of afterlife, that they hope that at the end of life, the good of their life will outweigh the bad. But if God says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, how is that going to work out? The good will never outweigh the bad because even the good is bad. No, the world is in desperate need of hope, gospel hope. Hope that only God can provide. Hope that only the gospel addresses and secures for us. And we have it. We have that message. Let's be ready to share it. Ready to give an answer. Fifthly, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. As Christians, we're to keep a good conscience. What does that mean? Well, the conscience we know, biblically, is is that God-given internal guide that helps us to do what is right or convicts us when we do what is wrong. Our conscience is that internal judge of between right and wrong. Now, our conscience is only as accurate as it is rightly informed and only as effective as we listen to it and don't ignore it, causing it to become seared. So the most useful conscience is the conscience that is informed by the Word of God and is regularly listened to. Follow your conscience and inform your conscience. So the Christian's role in this is that we are to be continually informing our conscience, not being conformed to the world, but having our mind transformed through continual renewal, which informs our conscience rightly about God's word and what is truth and what is right and what is wrong. And then following that conscience when it's calling us to do something or to not do something. By keeping a good conscience, the believer will be aided in living righteously. And in turn, these good deeds and this blameless life, this righteous life, will put to shame those who slander and revile you. You'll be blameless. That doesn't mean someone can't make an accusation against you. It just means that the accusation doesn't stick. It doesn't mean that we're perfect in life, but it does mean that the pattern of our life, the overall direction of our life, is exemplary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Keep a good conscience. Nothing will undermine the message of hope that we have like a life that is out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sixthly and finally, remember it is always better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
Verse 17, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes God's will is that we should suffer for doing the right thing. Know this, that God always has purposes in our suffering. Especially suffering that comes as a result of doing the right thing. In suffering for doing what is right, we can still glorify God. But we can never glorify God when we suffer for doing what is wrong. Suffering for doing what is right then is always objectively better because it always gives glory to God. It always puts the spotlight on Him, His sufficiency, His faithfulness. God is glorified in our lives when we do the right thing in service to Jesus our Lord and we suffer for it. It's always better. When persecution comes, beloved, and it will, remember what Jesus said. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord make us faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be ready. In every season, and every circumstance. And your word is sufficient and has addressed every possible circumstance where we might need guidance. And this is certainly one of those. So Lord, help us to take these truths to heart, to count ourselves blessed, to sanctify Christ as Lord, And to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that's in us. Lord, make us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.